impactful stories on and off the field, told by the biggest names in the game. This is the Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Good morning, and welcome to the Sporting Life. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and I'm going to uh, admit this is going to be kind of bittersweet. Today, this is the last, the final, the ultimate, never-to-be-heard-again-on-radio edition of the Sporting Life. Started doing this show more than 20 years ago with my father, Dick Schapp, who was the original solo host of the show. Uh, after a couple of years, we started working together. He died in 2001. I continued doing the show on my own for a few years. Um, then we were, uh, I guess I was, uh, he was no longer on the show. Um, I was politely asked to stop doing the show. Um, in fact, there was no show for about five or six years. But then we came back in 2009. And now 11 years later, um, the show is moving to a strictly digital podcast uh, universe. We will no longer be on terrestrial radio. So I do want to thank uh, all of you, maybe I should say both of you, uh, our, our loyal listeners, um, for ta- paying attention through the years. On The Sporting Life, we have strived to cover the world of sports in all its glory and sometimes all its ugliness too. There's been a heavy emphasis over the years on writers and books, on sports history uh, on relationships, going to the well with uh, our, our closest friends, uh, our, our most frequent guests and commentators. But today we are um, trying to go out with a bang. Um, there was a lot going on in the world of sports yesterday, so it won't be difficult filling uh, the time this morning, starting with a lot of news on the COVID front, especially in football. There was also a big game, number two versus number three, Alabama-Georgia. We'll be talking about that. Uh, there were both league championship series taking place, the Dodgers forcing a seventh game against the Braves. Uh, meanwhile, the Rays advancing to the World Series for the first time in 12 years against the Astros, who had mounted that Spectacular comeback after being down 3-0, but falling just short. Um, we'll be talking about that as well. And a huge fight, which seems uh, seems to me, I'm a little tired, have it, to have just ended about 20 minutes ago, Lomachenko versus Lopez. A curious fight. Silly uh, uh, Lomachenko, who had widely been considered the best pound-for-pound fighter on the planet, he typically builds up momentum in the opening rounds, measuring his opponents. But last night, uh, as I said just a few hours ago, it seemed he waited too long to really engage. He didn't really come alive until about the eighth round. And then from the eighth through the twelfth, it was an entertaining and competitive fight, but too late for Lomachenko. A convincing, unanimous decision for Teofimo Lopez at 23. The Brooklynite unifies the lightweight championship uh, four divisions, all unified, uh, all belts being held by Lopez. He's poised to be not only uh, the next big thing in the fight game, he is right now currently the biggest thing in the fight game. And here he is after the fight with our colleague, Bernardo Osuna. I'm a fighter. I got to dig in deep. I know he was coming. 
I can't give him that. I don't know if they got him up on the scorecards or not. And I love to fight. I could bang too. I don't care, man. I'll take one to give one. That's what a true champion does. I come out there and I find a way to win. You and your father called for this fight, and you were supremely confident that you saw something in Lomachenko that you could exploit. What was it? Um, honestly, you just got to keep pressuring him. Keep putting the gas on him, and then all, all you got to really do, man, is stick the jab. Don't really give him that opportunity to set up. And every time he did want to throw, I had something ready for him, at least something throw. So it kind of stops his momentum. And, you know, on top of that, he's been on a 14-month layoff. I knew he was gonna have to, it was going to take a long time for him to catch up. Teofimo Lopez speaking with Bernardo Osuna a few hours ago after he defeated a unanimous decision against Vasily Lomachenko. Uh, he has arrived uh, now, Teofimo Lopez. There's no doubt about it. Four-division champion, unifying the lightweight belt. He's only 23 years old. Such an impressive performance, especially the first half of the fight. I'm looking forward to talking about that with our old friend, the great Teddy Atlas. He'll be on the show in about uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, As I said, the Astros thwarted in their attempt to become the second team ever to rally from a 3-0 deficit in a best of seven series, defeated by the Rays uh, last night. So the Rays are going to the World Series against the winner of Game 7, Dodgers Braves. And we'll be talking about... um, Baseball karma, of course, that is what a lot of people are talking about uh, right now with the Astros not reaching the World Series. Me, personally, I got nothing against Tampa. They've got a great story, too. Um, but from a narrative standpoint, the Astros in the World Series would have been would have been juicier. Uh, there's certainly no cheering in the press box uh, in terms of outcomes based on loyalties to teams, but there are loyalties to stories and to great narratives. And it would have been something to see the Astros after all that transpired in the last offseason back in the World Series. Our old friend Terrence Moore, the longtime national sports columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, SI, Forbes, he will be joining us to talk about that. This is the final terrestrial radio edition of the Sporting Life. Welcome back to the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Welcome back to this special edition of the Sporting Life. We're saying goodbye to terrestrial radio after... Boy, I don't even know the exact numbers, but I think it's something like 23 years. So we're inviting some of our favorite people, some of our favorite guests to join us today. And among them, the man who is with us now, he is a legend in Cleveland, a legend in Miami, one of the most beloved players in his era in the NFL, the great Bernie Kosar. Bernie, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, awesome to be with you this morning. Highly humbled and honored. Well, I am humbled and honored that you would join us, especially, Bernie, uh, on this uh, consequential weekend for Cleveland Browns football. The Browns are 4-1. The Steelers are 4-0. They're playing each other at 1 o'clock. What does it feel like to have a meaningful Browns-Steelers game at this point in the season? Well, I love the fact that I could actually enunciate um, a meaningful, a meaningful Browns Steelers game 
in the year 2020. Um, the physical play <laughs> of the old of the old AFC Central, which is now the old is now the AFC North. We really prided ourselves on that old school physical toughness um, from the the city of Pittsburgh and the city of Cleveland. And it really is almost eerily similar now on the Ohio River watching the Pittsburgh Steelers and their physical presence and the way they're playing. And now for the first time in a while, see the Browns um, coming in here with a 4-1 record and having a having that physical presence and seeing those two teams um, match up like they did in the older days. I'm looking forward to it. You know, Bernie, one of the interesting things, one of the great things about having you on today, it's always great talking to you, but, you know, you're not just, um, you're not just obviously a Cleveland Browns legend, played quarterback for the team for nearly a decade from 85 through 93, but you're from Boardman, Ohio, um, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, Bernie, it's, it's almost the exact midpoint between Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Yes, Youngstown Boardman is basically actually closer to Pittsburgh, about uh, 45 minutes to an hour from Pittsburgh and about an hour and 15 minutes to Cleveland. Half the city grows up as Browns fans. The other half of the city grows up as Steelers fans. And almost ironic that as a little boy, uh, now it's Hinesville, but Three Rivers Stadium, Cleveland Browns had the Three Rivers jinx of losing 16 straight games um, there. So as a boy, never seeing the Browns, win at Pittsburgh was something that um, was actually somewhat scarring as a, as a youth growing up. And then to be so blessed to be the quarterback that gets a chance to play in that rivalry and then actually end that streak was, was um, incredibly fun. We're speaking with the two-time Pro Bowl quarterback, Super Bowl champion when he was playing for the Cowboys as Troy Aikman's backup, a Heisman Trophy finalist in 1984. I think that's the year Doug Flutie won. Right, Bernie? We're speaking of Bernie Kozar. Doug Flutie had that hail Flutie pass. Yes. Bernie, when you think about when you think about the rivalry, Steelers Browns, which just celebrated its seventieth anniversary, the first ever Brown Steelers game was seventy years ago last week. Um and let's be frank, it's been a lopsided rivalry for most of the last 55 years as the Steelers have won six Super Bowls and the Browns haven't won an AFC title. But it's still so intense. What 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 defines this rivalry for you? Why is it the rivalry that it is? Jeremy, this may sound a little, a little uh, egotistical to say this, but uh, growing up in Youngstown, and you astutely point out the Steelers have uh, had six Super Bowl rings and six and in every generation of of, um, of the great NFL over over its history, and for them to have those six um, six championships, and for them to have, especially lately, the better end of, of this rivalry, they should really um, take pride in that. But I love to add, except the nine years that I got a chance to beat their <laughs> when, the, when I played against them. <laughs> so, what was what was your record against the Steelers? Do you remember that off off the top of your head, Bernie? Again, would it would it be um, uh, self serving to say I remember ten and four that the CTE hasn't kicked <laughs> in that much yet? <laughs> Bernie, come on. That, you know what? And, and I was thinking about, I wrote a piece that's on Countdown today about the rivalry. So I, I, I'm actually better prepared than I typically am for these things. Um, yeah, your era, you guys were, were excellent. Um, most of um, the post 
64 NFL championship era, you know, was, was down for the Browns. Uh, there were, there were some bright spots, but in 89 at the beginning of your fifth season, um, I think that was 51 to nothing at three rivers stadium, the worst defeat in Pittsburgh history. Yeah. But to be able to go to Pittsburgh and today, Really, it's just about getting the W, and it's not about really disrespecting or overly crushing teams like that. But for, a, again, a little boy to grow up in, in uh, Youngstown and watch the beatings that the Steelers put on our Cleveland Browns growing up, to be, a, be the quarterback in that game, and, and the late, great Bud Carson, who was one of the masterminds mm-hmm. of the Steel Curtain defense when the Steelers um, were winning those Super Bowls in the 70s, had become our head coach that year. So it was really, it was really an emotional, um, an emotional time to, to go there. And again, from 1989 to now, to, to remember a, um, a 51 nothing game is special. Yeah, I feel bad, Bernie, and I'm kind of uh, darting back and forth among things, but, but maybe um, I should feel bad that I brought up Doug Flutie actually, in the whole Heisman thing because of November 23rd, 1984, uh, being on, on the other end of that. But, but, but we'll move on. I'm sorry. Uh, you, you two linked by one of the great games ever played in college football. You know, on, on, um, that was actually one of the only games that I celebrated early because we had scored a touchdown like 20-some seconds to go. And you always play to the final whistle, but – uh, Doug, Doug Flutie and the original Hail Flutie, Hail Mary pass Oof. was um, <laughs> was a dagger wow. in the Canes' heart. On and it was not an early thing. Years ago, thirty six yeah, years ago, you scarred me. You scarred <laughs> me on that uh, <laughs> Canes thing. So, it was only thirty six years ago. I can get over it. <laughs> uh, so, so um, last year, of course, Steelers Browns. Um, the incident: Miles Garrett and Mason Rudolph. Uh, you know, Miles Garrett swinging his helmet, the Browns' great lineman against Mason Rudolph, who was playing quarterback last year for the Steelers. Garrett subsequently uh, accusing Rudolph of calling him a racial slur. Uh, Rudolph denies it um, adamantly. The NFL conducted an investigation. It says it found no evidence and it's uh, suspended Garrett for the rest of the year. Uh, how do you think all of that um, might play into what happens uh, in the game now? I really love the way um, um, both head coaches uh, have really handled themselves in talking to their team this um, this week about it. You know, Coach Stefanski being his first Steelers-Browns game and um, on a four-game winning streak and talking about the importance of just getting a W this week. And, and Coach Tomlin, um, you know, the – the um, leadership that he's showed through that organization for multiple decades is nothing uh, is um, so special within our league. And I love how he articulated um, this week that this is the 2020 season. This is the 2020 Steelers. This is the 2020 Browns. This isn't a game for reality TV or vendettas. And this isn't about the 2019 um, game and retribution and things like that. It's about what you could do on Sunday at one o'clock between one and four to win the game. Now that was said perfectly. If from a transcript perspective of it, 
But, boy, when you look in the eyes, the intensity of Coach Tomlin and the way he said it, um, you know that when you go to Heinz Field in general, you're going to have, a, have to have a, a physical game to, to match their intensity. Um, but the way Coach Tomlin, I think, was articulating that message to his team, I really believe mm-hmm. that there won't. Between the whistles, it'll be extremely physical. But I think both teams know um, the magnitude of this game and any of that extracurricular stuff. You're not only going to um, um, hurt yourself, but more importantly, you're going to hurt your team. And you don't want to be the guy that causes you to get an L um, on Sunday because you have lack of discipline and, and you made a mistake. We're speaking with Bernie Kozar, the legendary Cleveland Browns quarterback, played the position for the team for nine years, 1985 through 1993, also played for the Cowboys and the Dolphins, won a Super Bowl championship as a backup with the Cowboys, a two-time Pro Bowler with the Browns. Bernie, um, last year we went to a game together in New Jersey. We went to a Jets-Browns game. And uh, it wasn't a great football game. You might remember that. But the biggest thrill for me was seeing all the Browns fans, and not just Browns fans, but just the football fans. Anybody who was there, the way they respond to you. And I know this is a hard thing for you to, to talk about, but the, the way that you remain in the hearts and the minds of the fans who saw you play, what does that mean to you? That, that's so special. And thanks, Jeremy, for kind of remembering that, pointing it out. And then getting us such great tickets to that Browns Jets game, and <laughs> and it depends on what side of the aisle you were on to say whether it was that a, was that a good game or not. Um, but you know when you walk True. around and as you True. get as you get older, um, I'm not sure when I was younger, um, I maybe understood the the effect of uh, athletes for myself had on people and especially the, the community. But as I've gotten older and um, you pay attention to that and the, um, um, the lives that you've affected, the lives you've helped change, and hopefully the lives you've maybe added a little positiveness to and a raise of hope, um, when you see people now like that at the games um, in and around the community, um, as we get older and in these uncertain different times within society where um, – um, sometimes it's people are quick to get angry or, or, or mad. It's it's really, really flattering and, and humbling to, to see those experiences and to, to share those moments with people. Bernie, uh, it's so great talking to you, catching up. We hadn't really spoken since uh, the beginning of the pandemic. And um, big day for the Cleveland Browns. So it, it, it means so much to us. Uh, especially now that you would come on the show. Thank you, Bernie. It's always great talking to you. Thanks. Great being with you, Jeremy. Go Browns today. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. So the fight seems to have ended just a few hours ago. If you stayed up late on the East Coast to watch it, an impressive performance. Tiafimo Lopez uniting the lightweight crown, all four belts now in his possession. A convincing win against Vasily Lomachenko. And to break it down, we welcome our old friend, the boxing guru, the Hall of Famer, Teddy Atlas. Teddy, thank you for being with us. 
Uh, you're welcome, Jeremy. I do it for you. 2.30 in the morning, went to bed. I'm no, I go to bed early. I don't even get up this early. So. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm feeling consider it too. Yourself, I, consider yourself special. I, I, I feel very lucky uh, to have you join us, not only to break down the fight, Teddy, but you know I don't know if you're aware, um, but this is the final edition of The Sporting Life on the radio after more than... I don't know, 30, 35 years, something like that. We've been on a long time. And for this last show, um, you know, we were talking about who do we want to have on. And you were, of course, one of the first names mentioned because um, I value your thoughts so much. Um, I appreciate our friendship so much. We go back a long way. And especially in the aftermath of a fight as consequential as the fight we saw last night, albeit um, it was late and uh, we've only had a few hours of sleep since then. I wanted to get yeah. your thoughts. It was, it was kind of strange, right? I mean, I know that's his MO, Lomachenko, starting slowly, measuring his opponent, um, taking some time to, to warm up. But, but by the eighth round, um, he needed a knockout to win. What, what was going on? Well, you know, you uh, appreciate it thoughts and having me on and I'm really more than happy to be on your last show I mean congratulations Thank on you. the show having the life that it's had and you being what you've been to it and um, it'll be missed and um, again I'm honored Thank you. that you asked me to be on the last show and I wouldn't miss it for anything and having said that I had it a draw and, you did. Um, but yeah I had it a draw but then again that's why you had me on because I'm gonna, I'm gonna set off alarm clocks, and I, yeah, I had. First of all, I had him starting to really take rounds and control him being Lomachenko of the mm-hmm. rhythm of the fight from the seventh round on. The judges had it later; they had an eighth or ninth when they started to get into gear. I had the seventh, and I gave him, I gave him an early round. Uh, you. Obviously, the other judges didn't. I gave Lomachenko the second round, and that made all the difference in the world. You don't give him the second round, then, you know, I have Lopez winning by one or two points. No more than that, though, in all, in all fairness. No more than that. Uh, again, my scorecard was 114-114. I gave Lomachenko the, the second round. Uh, Lopez captured the first, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. And then I had Lomachenko turning it around, taking the 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th, 11th. And then Lopez behaving like a champion. Uh, I have to say that. And coming back and stemming the tide, if you believe in my scorecard, stemming the tide and winning the 12th round. I thought the inactivity definitely hurt Lomachenko over a year that he hasn't fought longest inactivity of his career. But the threat of power. And I say the threat of power, because he didn't get really caught anything clean early, but he knew the power was there. He right. knew the power was there. And I got to give all the credit to Lopez, because Lopez fought a smart fight. You know, he didn't fight just like a puncher. He fought like a good boxer, like a smart guy that had the package together. Uh, he used the jab. He had good hand speed. He used his jab to dictate range to control range and distance, to make it where sometimes I, when I was calling the fights at ESPN, I would say, you know, 
he's making it where you have to go through a neighborhood. You have to go through real estate to get to him. And it's a bad neighborhood. And you might get mugged on your way in. And so you have to be... You have to be cognizant of that. And Lomachenko is cognizant of that. Yeah, he was a slow starter. You're, you're 100% right. But it was more than just that. It was what I just said. Knowing that the power was there. Knowing that the speed was there. Knowing that he wasn't giving up real estate. He being uh, Lopez, where he was allowing him to get close. He was making him earn it. He was making him earn that real estate. Every foot, every foot and a half that he was trying to close, because Lomachenko's a shorter guy, there was the threat of a charge, a price, and it wasn't money. It was punches, and he was going to make them earn that real estate. And that, for me, that's exactly what happened. And the other thing is, I, I thought it was just outrageous and um, terrible was the scorecards, especially the Letterman scorecards. Yeah, one nineteen, one eleven. Is that right? I, yeah, it was one nineteen to. It was actually one nineteen, one oh nine. I mean, she gave okay. one round. So you have one round to Lomachenko. I, I don't think you find anyone on the planet that would come close. And and it's just part of the problem with boxing. It had a magnificent night, a great fight, a dangerous chess match, Spassky and Fisher, you know, and, and it looked like maybe maybe the Eastern European might might be able to this time grab it. And he didn't. But it was a terrific night to bring back boxing, which had been gone since the COVID, yeah. where there hasn't been good fights, where there hasn't been good ratings, where the UFC has gone ahead. And I, it, it's tough for me to say that, but it's true. It's my, mm. I love this sport. It's my life. 45 mm. years in boxing. But UFC has surpassed it in popularity. And a lot of it's got to do with putting competitive fights on and less robberies. Who wants to watch a movie when you know the ending? Nobody. Nobody. So even though it was a terrific, it was everything you wanted it to be, and I applaud them, but at the end of the day, once again, boxing gets a black eye. I mean, how do you get a black eye when you have a good, terrific fight like that? And the boxing is like the Cyclops. There's no more eyes. There's no more eyes. Like Bert Sugar would say, there's no more eyes to blacken the great late Bert Sugar. So that's the to me that's the that's the part that that is troublesome. That there will still be hmm. there there will you can see the comments in social media. People terrific fight, they applaud it. But at the same time they're saying that's why I don't watch the sport no more because you can't get an honest call. And people We're didn't feel Teddy honest. And like I said, it was I thought it was horrible to score. We're speaking with Teddy Atlas, uh, our old friend, the ESPN boxing analyst. He's on the show, Pennzoil Performance. I never have to say that stuff, Teddy, so it's kind of weird, but they, they tell me I have to say it uh, when we're doing yeah, the no, show. Yeah, no, that's Usually okay. the show's take. So l- let me ask you, though. Um, if you're in Lomachenko's corner last night, w- what do you tell him, though? Because y- you know that um, he could have been behind on all those cards through yes, seven, yes. through eight. So w- how, how, how do you get him going? Well, first of all, where do you start? And that's where you finish. What do I mean by that? I think part of this is where you start with a plan, Jeremy. I think part of the plan was pretty obvious with the father. The father's a very smart man. He's done a hell of a job, obviously. The kid won two gold medals in the Olympics and won a world title in his third fight and has gone up uh, to win in three different weight classes. But where do you start? He started with 
that you're going to be careful. You're going to give away rounds knowingly to try to get the younger 23-year-old kid who hasn't been on this kind of stage into deep waters and drown them. So that's where you started. Yeah, Teddy, so I'm, started I'm sorry we're going to have to cut this short. Uh, it's you know, the constraints of live radio, but it means so much to me that you've been on the show today for uh, no our last problem, terrestrial show. Go get some sleep. The great Teddy Atlas. I, first Thank you for time I ever us. got an eight count, by the way. First time. <laughs> Thanks, Teddy. Be a part of the sporting life on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed at ESPN Radio. ESPN Nation is presented by Dr. Pepper. It's official. College football's back, and so is your favorite Dr. Pepper-loving college football town, Fansville. Head to a store near you to treat your inner college football fan to an ice-cold 20-ounce Dr. Pepper today. Coming up next on The Sporting Life with the Braves heading to a Game 7 against the Dodgers. Some insight on what Freddie Freeman's overcome this season. We'll be speaking with the great Terrence Moore. That's next on The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Welcome back to The Sporting Life, presented by Progressive Insurance. ESPN Radio is presented, uh, as I just said, The Sporting Life is presented by Progressive Insurance. I'm supposed to read all this stuff. I don't usually do this. Quoting home insurance just got easier with Progressive's home quote, explorer, quote, and buy, all online at progressive.com. We're going to a Game 7 in the National League Championship Series, Dodgers-Braves. And joining us now is a man who has been covering the Braves for more than four decades. He is the uh, eminent national columnist now with Forbes and SI. Spent a long time, of course, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. One of our favorite guests, Terrence Moore, joins us on the Shell Pennzoil Performance Line. Terrence, thank you for being with us. Well, it's good to be here, uh, even though I am in Losersville, USA at the moment. <laughs> you were- Yesterday, Jeremy, that, this was the worst day in the history of Atlanta sports, but anyway, and, and the Braves didn't make it any easier. So, so you're talking about what? Uh, you're talking about the team in Athens. You're talking about the team, the Georgia Tech team. You're talking about the yes. Braves. Am I missing something? Is there something else? No. Uh, I mean, when, when, you, when you have a Georgia Tech team that loses by 66 points, yeah, it was Clemson, but yeah, you know, 66 points. That's the biggest loss ever in the history of Georgia Tech in, in modern times, which I'm about since 1900. Then you got Georgia, once again, showing that uh, that Kirby Smart cannot beat uh, Nick Saban ever. Blew a uh, second-half lead for the third time against Nick Saban. And then, what you want to talk about here, you got our lovely Braves blowing a 3-1 lead in, L- in LCS, of course, at Game 7. This is not good. No, I, I got to tell you, actually, Terrence, um, we could talk about whatever we want to talk about. This is the last uh, show on radio, so, you know, what are they going to do? <laughs> but um, uh, I was thinking when I saw the Georgia Tech score, the Clemson-Georgia Tech score, my thoughts immediately turned to John Heisman and Cumberland. And what oh, was that? yeah. It felt like the revenge of Cumberland. Uh, two, what yeah. was that, 222 to nothing? Yeah, you're exactly right. And as you know, you talk about karma, something. right, with the with the Astros, but it, it, it might apply here too, <laughs> although it's long delayed. Well, you want to know something about that that score? I mean, that that's like the most lopsided score of all time. And and don't I know that your listeners won't tell anybody this, particularly since it's the last show. But to sign on to the, if you're a media member, 
at the Bobby Dodd Stadium to sign on to their, their internet, that that final score is the code you use to connect to the internet. <laughs> that, you know, it's someone with a sense of humor did that, Terrence. I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, I really do. And, and we are speaking uh, with the great Terrence Moore, uh, the longtime national sports columnist who's been based in Atlanta since, what is it, 77, Terrence? Well, actually, since uh, 1985, I came here from the San Francisco Examiner. I was there for five years, Cincinnati for three years. So I've uh, so been here since 1985, uh, and uh, I want to talk a little bit about tonight's game, because uh, game seven. Because, again, it's been here since 1985. I have seen a lot with the Braves that's been good, and I've been see- I've seen a lot of, of the Braves that have been bad, and I've seen a lot with the Braves that have been weird. Mm. And uh, uh, this, this, sets, this, to me, is just another one of those weird things involving the Braves tonight with this Game 7. And I'm saying that because, you know, I mean, this is so Braves. You know, they, they take a 2 nothing lead in NLCS, against the Dodgers, a, a very, uh, just a powerful Dodger team, up 3-1, to one, and now you're going to a Game 7. I mean, so everybody around here who who remembers a little bit are panicking because, you know, you go back to last year, they're in the decisive Game 5 against the, the St. Louis Cardinals, and everybody's feeling pretty good if you're a Braves fan. Yet, after the first inning, it's 10 nothing, and the game's right here in Atlanta, all right? And then, of course, you have the most famous one of all, the collapse of all for the Braves. There's been many. But uh, 1996, they take a 2 nothing lead in the World Series. The only team to win the first two games at Yankee Stadium yep. and lose the World Series because of Jim Larich. Jim Larich, so, you know, all that big home those run. Tapes, exactly. So, you know, th- these are the things that people are thinking king. about. Now, isn't that what they call Jim Larich, king or the king? Because he, well, he carried himself with kind of a, a, a royal air. All I know is Ron, here they call him the devil. <laughs> We're speaking not, with Terrence not a good Moore. memory. Terrence, Terrence uh, you know, I, I want to talk about Freddie Freeman. We talked about Freddie Freeman earlier in the week on Outside the Lines on SportsCenter. And, um, you know, the, the remarkable... Um, uh, season that he had, yes. uh, especially after he was so sick with the coronavirus uh, at the beginning of July. But first, you know, you're a baseball historian. You've been around, around the game a long time. Clayton Kershaw's struggles in the postseason, one of the great yeah. pitchers of all time. How do you make sense of it? Well, it's baseball, or better yet, it's sports. I mean, you know, you know these things happen sometimes where you, just because you're a great player overall. I mean, just think of all those years, A-Rod, for instance. Uh, A-Rod, he had some terrible, uh, terrible postseasons, yeah, no doubt. Exactly. So, I, I mean, and once you start having one bad postseason, and then it becomes a, a thing that starts rattling around your head, and it just becomes worse and worse and worse. And, 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 and what's interesting for this Game 7, needless to say, in these situations, you throw Johnny Bullpen at uh, your opponent. And uh, one of the decisions that Dave Roberts, the manager of the Dodgers, is going to have to make is when and if to use Kershaw. Now, I will say this about Kershaw. Kershaw is good for about five innings. All right? mm. Then you got to yank him out. So part of the problem has been, certainly in this postseason, is Dave Roberts, the Dodger manager, once he got to the fifth inning, instead of just going by history and taking him out, he left him in there. So, But it's, nevertheless, it's going to be interesting to see what Dave Roberts decides to do uh, with with Kershaw, how much he decides to use him if 
he decided to use him. How is uh, how is Braves World feeling about this? Well, I can say it's not good. Not not for the older Braves nation, but but here's the here's the good news. The good news is this: if you're, if you're a Braves fan, uh, number one, uh, the two of their key players, Ozzy Osbies and and also uh, Ronald Acuna, they weren't even born when Jim Larich hit his famous home run in 1996 <laughs> to help the Yankees come back. So they don't they don't know anything about that. that that's good news. The other good news for Braves fans is Ian Anderson. He's a rookie. He's going to be the starting pitcher tonight, and he's been a miracle pitcher in the postseason. So so much so that he has not allowed a run. So that's good news. That's good news. Freddie Freeman, uh, as we said, he had been so sick. Then he has an MVP caliber season. I guess does he does he probably win the MVP award? Oh, he he, he has to. I mean, he's just been phenomenal, and even during this collapse. He's still hitting well. He's also still fielding well. And you know something, uh, Jeremy? Uh, I guess Tim Kirkson, we need him on the line because he can probably tell you this off the top of his head. But ever since Freddie Freeman, and this is just a feel for me. I'm just feeling this. I don't know this for sure. Since Freeman came to the Braves a decade ago, I'll bet you he's got to be in the top three or four in Major League Baseball uh, as far as batting average with runners in scoring position. He, he's incredible. I, I just Clutch. I've never understood why people pitch to him when there's a runner, particularly at third base. I mean, it's, it's insane. So, the, so that that's another one of their hopes. Besides Ian Anderson, is they've got Freddie Freeman, who is secretly one of the top two or three clutch players in Major League Baseball. Terrence, before we let you go, and I, I, you've got a big uh, day in sports uh, ahead of you uh, with this game seven, especially, but. Um, Baseball has lost so many giants in the oh, last yeah. few weeks, and and most recently, Joe Morgan, um, someone I know you were around a lot, uh, one of the great players in the history of the game. Your thoughts about uh, Joe Morgan and his legacy, Terrence? Well, I'll just say this quickly. Joe Morgan is one of the, in the 42 years I've been covering professional uh, sports and certainly baseball, he is one of the most influential guys in my life because when I was working in Cincinnati and in the late seventies, as one of the backups for the big red machine, I was scared to death in that, in that locker room coming out of Miami, Ohio. And one of the guys that helped me tremendously was Joe Morgan. The other was Pete Rose. Those two guys, I will never forget uh, ever. Just great gentlemen. Besides fact being great ball players. One of the great teams of all time, Joe Morgan, National League MVP in 75 and 76, dying this past week. Terrence, it's a pleasure, as always, having you on the show with your perspective on all things sports. Thank you so much. Impactful stories on and off the field, told by the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. All right, it's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And joining us on the Shell Pennzoil Performance Line, the man who is, I think, um, our most frequent guest over the last decade plus, the ESPN.com senior writer, Howard Bryan. Howard, thank you for being with us. Hey, Jeremy, how's it going? 
Usually we do this uh, on tape, Howard, you know, at, at, at a more reasonable hour. Uh, how are you feeling now that it's 8.02 on the East Coast? I feel awake now, which wasn't the case uh, nine minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> we had a sneaking suspicion that might be the case. Sorry, sorry for waking you up. It's... um. You know, it, it's it's been a few days since we last spoke, <clears throat> during which time uh, uh, a man named Rafael Nadal won his 20th Grand Slam singles title, straight sets win over Djokovic at Roland Garros. Uh, what, what is it now? Is it 100 out of 102 matches in his career that Mr. Nadal, yeah, they- Nadal has won at Roland Garros? Yeah, the numbers are the numbers are staggering. I mean, it's unbelievable he's he he's a hundred and two. He's one hundred for one hundred and two, which is what ninety eight percent, ninety eight point one percent, which yes. is absolutely insane. There's no way to really sort of uh, quantify or qualify or explain what he does when he gets there, because it's not as though I mean you can beat Nadal. I mean it doesn't happen mm-hmm. very often, but he does lose on clay. We've seen it happen in the run up to. Rolling Garros, but when he gets there, I think what I find most amazing about Nadal at the French Open is that he doesn't even go five sets. Yeah, he's only gone five sets there twice. He went. He went once Ever? with John Isner. Ever he's gone once no, with that John can't Isner. Be true. At Rolling Garros, yes, he's gone <sighs> once with once against John Isner and once against Djokovic, and that's it. But it wasn't 180 <laughs> games against John Isner like like Mahu in, in, at Wimbledon. No, no, it wasn't. But the fact of the matter is, is that you know he he's getting in, getting out of there. Uh, it was such a satisfying victory if you were a Nadal watcher. It had to be for a Nadal watcher, considering that there's really one guy out there, and it's Novak Djokovic, who just absolutely. It's a nightmare matchup for him. And when they met in the final of the Australian Open in 2019, I mean, Djokovic destroyed him. Hmm. He, he's, not, he's not taken a set off of Djokovic on hard courts since 2013. It's incredible how much Djokovic has owned him. But then you put him on clay, and suddenly it's a different story. And the way that he played... Those first two sets, I'm not sure I've ever seen him more focused, uh, more dominant, more direct in sort of the mission against that one opponent, especially in in a final. And uh, I thought what was so fascinating about it, too, is that when we talk about sports and you're close to a record and especially the long climb of trying to tie Roger Federer, the impulse is to play is to overplay to want it so bad to overdo it to to not put in the flawless performance because you want to succeed so badly and he was out there and he took all of that adrenaline and all of that pressure and everything that was riding on that against that opponent and just put in an absolutely perfect performance you just don't see it that often it's it was incredible we're speaking with the SPN senior writer, Howard Bryant. You know, it doesn't seem that long ago to me, Howard, that um, we were talking about Pete Sampras, and he was surpassing um, 
I guess it was Roy Emerson, right, for the most all-time uh, yeah, singles titles yeah. among men, going from 12 okay. to 13. Sampras retiring with 14, and now we've got Federer and Nadal at 20. What's Djokovic up to, 17? Djokovic um, is 17. I, I, I mean, it's unfathomable, and we keep coming back to this because we talk about tennis a lot uh, between us on this show, and it, it's reductionist, right? It's... It, 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 it's when we just have these conversations about the greatest of all time and how you measure it and what's your criteria, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what we do in sports, right? So now that they're even, that is Nadal and Federer, um, how, how do you look at it? At this at this question, which because we're in sports and we're on sports radio, we have to address who's greater. Yeah, well, didn't we just do this a few days ago when the Lakers won the championship? and. Right. It's an incessant question that never goes away. Who's better, Michael or LeBron now? And before that, we were having these conversations in the in the past about who is the best of all time and how do you measure these things. And I think to me, the there are so many different ways that you can argue this. And it's a good argument. It's sports. This is what we're supposed to do, right? Let's not turn it into something that's not enjoyable, but it, it can be difficult, right? Each guy can claim a different piece of the greatest of all time. If you're Djokovic, can you claim you're the best ever? Sure, because both of these guys had huge leads on you. And we treat Djokovic like he's, he's the newcomer because it took him so long to reach the other two. But, okay, he's six years younger than Federer, but he's only a year younger than Nadal. Mm. And yet, at one point, Nadal had, I think, a nine-win lead over him, and so did Federer. He's got the head-to-head on both of them. So you can make that argument that, okay, he came, he saw, he conquered both of them. Obviously, you can make the argument on Federer being the greatest of all time because Federer is, because of Federer's economy, the way he, he's got such volume in each of the each of the slams, except, of course, the French Open. He's only got one. Same with Djokovic. Of course, you can make the argument that Nadal is the greatest of all time because Nadal has now caught Federer at 20, but at the same time, he's got 13 majors at one place, which is nobody's dominated, and he never loses there, for, essentially. Yeah. So each one has got some claim to it. You know, you look at the winning percentage in finals. Nadal's got the the edge there. You know, you look at the, you know, people like to say, well, Nadal's got, what is it, 13 out of 20, what is that, 65% of his majors at one place, whereas Rogers got them spread out a little bit more, except for one thing. Nobody can win at the French because Nadal's there. Djokovic has one, Federer's got one. So it kind of speaks to an amazing level of greatness that you are absolutely boxing out everybody from that one major. Whereas Nadal seems to be able to get to finals. He hasn't gotten to a Wimbledon final since 2011, but before that he had gone to five straight finals. So I I, I still listen to the Federer argument because he really is the one who who ushered in this entire era. He's the one that made everybody as great as they can be in some ways, because he was the standard. He was the one everybody was chasing for so long. Let's not forget at one point, I think he had a 17 to 12 lead on, on Nadal. I mean, when he, I I was there when he won his 17th, I think it was at Wimbledon in 2012 when he beat Murray and people were like, 
he's the greatest of all time and no one's ever going to catch him. And then it was like, Oh, let's just yeah. wait and see. Hold my beer. Right. And Howard, Brian, he beat, yeah. Howard mm-hmm. I, I'm afraid we're doing live this morning. Usually we, Oh my goodness. You're getting rid of me, Jeremy. That's yeah, right. I, gotta I just get keep rid of you. going. Cut I me loose. No choice. Howard Brown of ESPN.com, senior writer on the Shell Pennzoil performance line, straight talk wireless, no contract, no compromise. And it's weird reading those things for me, Howard, but but I, I understand the imperative. Um, it's always been great it. having you on this show. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for your contributions over the years. We'll continue it on the podcast. <laughs> Call me and talk tennis. I go crazy. <laughs> you do. Howard Bryant. Coming up next, Nancy Lieberman joins us. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. The Road to the World Series goes through ESPN Radio. Catch all the postseason action presented by AutoZone on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Sporting Life is presented by Progressive Insurance, and all guests appear via the Shell Pennzoil Performance Line. Line, not loin, joining us now. An old friend, not just of mine, but of the original host of this show, as we celebrate the final terrestrial radio version of The Sporting Life, friend of my father's, uh, he knew her since, God, I think she was, she might have been in junior high school when she was emerging as a star. She's now, of course, a member of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, the legend Nancy Lieberman. Nancy, thank you for being with us. It would. It's a pleasure. Um, just to hear you mention Dad makes me smile, and I just love you and your family. So thank you for the honor today, Nancy. It was it was a, a no brainer having you on today because you know I don't think we're getting uh, particularly sentimental this morning. <clears throat> Certainly, I hope not um, that we reach the level of of being maudlin. But when I think about um, uh, my dad, uh, who, as I said, was the host of this show in its first few years. And then uh, after he died, I did it solo. We did it um, together for a little while. And I think of the people who meant a lot to him in his life. Um, you, you're at the top of the list. You guys were so close. Um, and and um, it just felt appropriate to have you here today. I don't even know what we're going to talk. I mean, we could talk about basketball. We could talk about the NBA, and the WNBA. Well, but I just want to talk about life. And, and you know what, uh, what your dad did for me when I was in college and, you know, just think about at Old Dominion in, in 78, 79, 80, you know, we were winning and we had notoriety, but it was your dad who took an interest in me on a personal level. And, you know, he looked behind uh, the, the points or the championships and wanted to know the person. And that's why there's so many of us who love your dad and then he decided, um, <laughs> as only your dad could, I needed to meet more people. So I'd go to New York. I'd play tennis with him. Mm-hmm. You know, I was with your mom. Um, as I told you the story many times, you were just a young boy bouncing on my knee at lunch, which is so beautiful. <laughs> but your dad just was a connector of people, whether it was to Ali, whether it was to Julius or Franco or... Rory Green, it didn't matter. Your dad just reveled in, you know, putting people together. And I don't think anybody did no. it better better than him. We're speaking with Nancy Lieberman, the Basketball Hall of Famer, Lady Magic. Um, Nancy, I, I, you know, I, I was um, 
I, I was looking at your bio on Wikipedia just now, you know, making sure I had all of the accolades that they were updated in my in my brain. It, it and it says you're 62. That can't be true. Are you? It, it, it feels like you were crazy? a teenager yesterday, huh? I, I've tried to erase that off my life. It's still there. Time. It's still it's there on your page. But you know, I mean, God blessed me. Um, I love to have fun. I wake up happy. Um, I'm around young people all the time. So I have, I guess, what you call perspective, but I also have reality. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy in where I am and the things that have happened in my career. And, you know, your dad affected me, you affected me. But then, you know, I had a lifetime of Muhammad Ali as my friend. I mean, I had 40 years of Ali in my life helping me with decisions that I wasn't sure early in my career and influencing me to be the, the woman that I am today. And then four decades of people will come and say, you did this or you affected me or you challenged me. And it just makes me smile with so much um, gratitude and humility that we're all able to help each other. You know, what you've done, you know, unveiling the stories you've unveiled uh, and I was just watching you uh, with with uh, Drew Bledsoe <laughs> drinking oh, on, uh, on the wine wine farm, and I'm looking at you going, "That's that's my buddy, that's my guy," and I'm just so proud of of the respect that you have, but of the work that you've done. It doesn't come easy that's following a legend. That's very kind, Nancy. I, I got to ask you, Nancy. You know, we're coming off now um, a remarkable time in basketball amid the pandemic. Uh, the success of the WNBA and NBA bubbles, um, a great rating story for the WNBA, uh, not so much for the NBA. As, as one of the, the giant figures in the women's game, um, how do you view what the WNBA in particular was able to achieve in the last few months? Well, first, let me say that they are great gatekeepers of the game. Um, I so admire, you know, Asia Wilson and Angel McCautry and, you know, I can go down to Bird because they've just done the right thing for so long. And, and again, you know, to be a leader, you have to be an influencer. And they have done that. And, and to see how they represent each other on and off the court and what they've done. And in this pandemic, which nobody could have been prepared for, nobody. What Adam Silver did and, you know, and, and with Kathy Engel, Engelbert in the um, WNBA, the commissioner, you just have to give them a lot of praise uh, for being level-headed, for listening to others around them, and then putting a plan together in the bubble, which will forever be followed. There's no doubt that that bubble formula, and it'll be tweaked, but we'll always be prepared for whatever comes at us next. And, you know, I mean, Adam Silver's the greatest commissioner in sports um, mm. and has been since he took over. When the players respect you that much, that means you're doing something right and you're hearing people. And all we want to be, you know, in life is to be heard by our, our bosses uh, or our business partners. So I commend the, the NBA, but I also commend the, the WNBA um, uh, for lifting the level of play. And I, I really can't wait for uh, my friend uh, Sabrina Inescu to get back on the court full time. 
uh, I was so anxious to see her play, and then she had um, that ankle injury. So the future's bright in that league. Uh, in the NBA, uh, with another Lakers championship, another um, remarkable season-long performance, you could say, by by LeBron James. Um, you know, we, you, in our last segment, we're talking about Nadal versus Federer, and I'm sure you have some opinions on that as well, with your background in tennis. But 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 let's talk, let's talk basketball. Uh, I, I feel it's unfair that um, the conversation greatest of all time has been reduced now just to two guys, Michael Jordan and LeBron James. I mean, Will Chamberlain, right, Nancy? He deserves to still be talked about, the way he dominated the game, the things he did. You could talk about Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as well, but to me, and you know my dad and Wilt and how um, my dad felt about Wilt and respected him, it, 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 I know that there's always this, this bias towards what we've seen most recently, but how do people forget about Will Chamberlain? Well, you know, Babe Ruth and Wilt Chamberlain, in my opinion, are mythical. You know, um, it's like people kind of know they're there, but they never had a chance to really see them play. Like my generation uh, had a chance uh, to see him play. And I, in, in a great twist of fate, I, I had a chance to know Wilt Chamberlain, and he came to watch me play in college. So you can't forget the history of the game. But with social media, you know, today's stars are today's stars, and they create their own Mount, Mount Rushmore and just give people props for who they are. It's okay if it's LeBron, Michael, Wilt, or Wilt, Michael, LeBron, or Michael, LeBron, Wilt. It doesn't matter because you're talking about the best of the best over time. Well, Hall of Famers all, like yourself, Nancy, it means so much to me that you were able to join us this morning on the show. Uh, I always love talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm sneaking on your next show. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Coming up next on The Sporting Life, we will be joined by a football legend, a Heisman Trophy winner, who has moved on to a career as a thespian. Eddie George, the former All-Pro running back for the Tennessee Titans, will be joining us on The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Welcome back to The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who say with Progressive save... Over $750 on average. Shouldn't it be more than $750 on average? Call or click today and find out if we could save you hundreds on your car insurance. And um, as I've been saying since we came on the air this morning, this is the final terrestrial version, terrestrial radio version of The Sporting Life. I believe this is the Longest lived show on ESPN radio on the network. I think the first show, it's hard to figure out exactly. I think the first Sporting Life show was approximately 1997. And back then the show was hosted um, by Dick Shap, my father. After a couple of years, he 
decided he wanted a sidekick. So I co-hosted for a couple of years. And then after he died in 2001, I solo hosted the show. This is a lot of history, which is probably uninteresting to most people, but it is our final show. So I hope you'll indulge me. And then um, the show went away for a few years. We were rudely interrupted. And then uh, we came back in 2009. Again, uh, the sporting life was back on the air. And this is what we've been doing for the last 11 years. Um, uh, and today, this is the last radio version of the show. We are moving to a podcast-only format. So we've been having a little trip down memory lane with some of our favorite guests, people I've been close to, people my father uh, uh, were close to. But it seems only appropriate now because over the... Um, decades long run of this show. We've had um, some outstanding producers uh, who, who drew the short straw in Bristol working on this with me. And um, standing in for all of them, I thought it would be important to have one of our producers as a representative of the experience of producing the sporting life. So this morning, um, again drawing the short straw, as he does so often on ESPN Radio, our good friend Mike Urinaga is here. Mike, how are you? Oh, good morning, Jeremy. I'm doing fine. I, uh, I'm happy <laughs> Mike, to be here. you weren't here. expecting to be on the radio this morning. Well, no, I think this is, is one of the uh, behind-the-scenes things that happen here at The Sporting Life. When a guest does not show up like they're supposed to, this is sort of what we do. You're not supposed to. We weren't going to talk about that. <laughs> we were just going to. You were standing in for all of the producers who have labored so long and so hard and so lovingly on this show. This isn't mere filler. You know, this is this is an essential component, I think, of telling the story of the sporting life um, as we fade into the sunset as oh, yeah. we ride into the sunset as we I would say um, change into a new iteration I think a new iteration that's 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 a nice way of putting it um uh what, what how long were you the producer I can't even remember I think we were talking about the list of producers the other day and and, and I kind of you've always been kind of in an oversight role so I kind of forgot that you were like the hands-on producer for a while what uh, it, it, and be serious here sure how did this show fit or not fit into um, uh, the ESPN radio landscape? Well, I can tell you that for me, this show has been part of my experience here at ESPN. I've been here for over 20 years, uh, going almost 21 now. And I've had, I think, three, at least, now this is to be my fourth uh, tour of the show, I guess you could say, because when I first started really? working the board here at ESPN radio and running our our audio board. I was actually the board engineer for the show uh, for mm. a few years, and I I did become when I first started producing radio. I actually produced a show when your father was the host, uh, and then we <clears throat> we brought you on with him. I was also was producing the show, and then I, you know, kind of left and came back a couple different times, and uh, and now I get to oversee it. We're speaking with Mike Urinaga, one of the many unfortunate souls over the years who has produced. The sporting life. You know, it, it was interesting to me because we did this show for such a long time with with very gentle oversight. I think that's one way of putting it. I mean, it, it was, I'd like to tell people that the show was kind of aggressively programmed at times not to be listened to. Um, you know, it, it wasn't just esoteric subjects at times. It was um, obscure um, and we were always on the lookout for the most obscure. One segment that stands out 
for me, and this was probably 20 years ago, I think we had um, the great photographer George Kalinsky on the show. You remember George Kalinsky, the great, the great photographer, Madison Square Garden, the official photographer of Madison Square Garden for a long time. Wonderful gentleman, terrific photographer. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's hard, Mike, right, to talk about photographs on radio. You well, know, it's, it, it doesn't really lend itself. But what I would say is, what I would say is, the, the great part about this show is the storytelling part of it. Is that there aren't a lot of shows that will take a story and really dive as deep as you do, and as the show does, into the subject matter. That's because I don't have to read any of the billboards. Right. That's exactly what it again. Which I, I full don't transparency. Understand. You know, I haven't done this uh, this billboard thing in a long time. They've been read uh, for me. Um, and, and, uh, when you do it, it kind of interrupts the whole flow of what you're doing. I mean, I, I, I'm totally appreciative for, you know, the support and of course it's necessary, uh, and you want to have billboards because it suggests of course that people, uh, that, that advertisers are willing to, you know, support, et cetera, but it's hard to really get into a flow. So I have a, a deeper admiration after having done the show this morning, this way for my colleagues, soon to be former colleagues on ESPN radio, uh, for how they manage to both, uh, do the mechanical part of the job and the content part of the job. And before you go any further, I'd just like to say that the show is brought to you by Shell V power Nitro <laughs> plus premium gasoline. <laughs> well, I know what you mean. <laughs> That was well done. I think I think I gotta say, uh, the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, and all guests, even Mike Urinaga, appear via the Shell Pennzoil performance line. Uh, but but I, I'm gonna finish the Kalinsky story because it wasn't just having a photographer on talking about. I mean, we've had great photographers on. He's not the only one. But he had just done a book that had nothing to do with sports. He had written a book, uh, or he'd compiled a, uh, a collection. He had a collection published of his photographs of rabbis all over the world. And the show used to be on on Saturday morning, you know, which is when people, uh, Jewish people are religious, uh, observant, go to temple. So we had a Saturday morning show with a photographer whose book was uh, a collection of pictures of rabbis. It wasn't the ideal you know, um, kind of sexy radio segment that sometimes you hear on other shows, but that was really our stock in trade. And uh, that's, I mean, that's just the beauty of the show. It's storytelling. You know, if you tell a good story out of that, that's, that's what's great about it. Mike, why is everybody telling me to rap? Like there is this desperate urge right now to rap and, and I'm enjoying our conversation. I don't know about you. I always enjoy our conversations, Jeremy. You know that. Mike, it's been a pleasure working with you all these years. I know at some level you're probably, you know, excited to have this off your plate um, to move to move on from the sporting life. But I, I'm sure at another level, um, there, there's there's some uh, sadness there. Oh, there is definitely sadness there. But I am excited to listen to the podcast. I can tell you because it's it's not going away. We're still here. That's a very good point, Mike Urinaga. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Shell Pennzoil Performance Line. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Coming up next, another radio host loves billboards, Dan Levitard, wrapping up the sporting life. Welcome back to the sporting life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
Welcome back to The Sporting Life. For a chance to win ten grand plus a virtual meet and greet with the Dan Lebitard Show gang, text Lebitard to 77333. Advance your auto at Advance Auto Parts. Limit one entry per day. See AdvanceAutoParts.com for details. And we are still hoping at some point in the next few minutes to be joined by Dan Lebitard. I thought it would be appropriate to speak to Dan as we wrap up this final segment ever of The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. Because back in the early days of the show, this is going back, again, more than 20 years ago, I'm sure, before many of our listeners were even born, um, before they were even cognizant of the existence of this medium radio, the ESPN Radio lineup consisted of uh, the Sporting Life, hosted by my father and me, followed by the Dan Lebitard show in its first iteration on ESPN Radio. Dan was a very young man back then. He's now um, practically a senior citizen, um, you know. But 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 it's his show has gone on to fame. He's gone on to fame and fortune himself. Uh, you know, he's a constant presence on the air on ESPN TV, on ESPN radio. You really can't avoid him, even if you were to try. Meanwhile, um, twenty plus years later, you know, uh, the sporting life's going uh, away, at least in terms of terrestrial radio. We're going to do a podcast, and, and it's going to be great. Um, but to wrap it up, our final few minutes here on the radio. Uh, Wanted to show um, uh, some appreciation for our listeners by having the great Dan Lebitard join. Are you there, Dan? H- have you now joined us? I am. Uh, I'm with you, Jeremy, and I want to tell you how uh, flattered I am uh, symbolically that you, as and no sarcasm here. I know you're used to sarcasm and me always poking you. Uh, that you, as the last journalist left at ESPN, that you carrying your father's legacy with a program that mattered to him on a medium that mattered to him in a medium that I started on 20 years ago at ESPN in this same time slot, that you would have me on at the punctuation of that symbolism because I know how much you cherished your father. I know how much you are craftsman about the work. I know how much you care about journalism and doing things professionally well. I am truly flattered that you would ask me to do this with you today. No joking. I know I rib you a lot, but no joking. That's very nice of you to think of me there. And, and, and it actually, Dan, you know, it was a no-brainer. There's no one else uh, I would rather be speaking to at this moment or any other. I, I, I really cherish um, our relationship and the conversations we've had over the years, and we've kind of, um, you know, in, in different parts of the country, a thousand miles apart, uh, grown up in the business at the same time, at the same, at the same company. Um, and, you know, when I think about people who do it the right way, uh, when I think about talent, and, and you know, and, and I don't want to get maudlin here or anything like that, I, I do think about you, and I think about... Um, you when you were on the sports reporters and when these radio shows started more than 20 years ago and what you have brought to this industry, the integrity and the talent and more than anything else. Um, and it really does remind me of my, my father and you more so honestly than anybody else, I think in the industry right now, the, the um, sense of our common humanity and your appreciation for it. And, um, and your effort always to identify the core of a story and the essence of the subject. 
And by the subject, I mean the person. And, and that's what I think uh, distinguishes you. I, um, I, it's interesting you should say this because we're going inside on your family lineage and the, the, you know, your father hand me down this thing and you had to fight through professionalism with hard work and with craftsmanship to, you know, not be the nepotism higher. And you've distinguished yourself as sort of the first family of ESPN because you've, uh, you know, carried your father's legacy with such grace. I, I wonder if you're amused as, uh, you know, a professional, objective observer telling the story that your father birthed this entire mutation of gas-bagging sports writers arguing on television, <laughs> and some of the humanity has been lost because we're not out here telling the story the way that you and your father told the story, but we're out here preening and peacocking and doing this nonsense that has corrupted and contaminated sports journalism because ESPN bought all the watchdogs that should be yelling about, uh, hey, how about the humanity <laughs> of the people involved in the storytelling? Yeah, it's like uh, was it um, was it Alexander Graham Bell the first phone connection? Was like, what hath God wrought? Was that the line? What, would he like it? What do you think? Do you think if your father, if your father turned on ESPN right now and saw a bunch of gas bags bloviating that he sat around a table on the sports reporters long before it became ESPN Times Square and the big monster that it became? Like he'd be fairly mortified by Kornheiser and Wilbon, even within their humanity. What? being the credited godfathers of the gas bag age at ESPN. He, oh, he'd be, he'd be mortified, mortified. But I, I got to say, he <laughs> when he died, I think, so he died in December 2001, and he was alive just long enough to see um, Pardon the Interruption become a phenomenon. I think it had launched a few months earlier. And I can't tell you how amused he was that, you know, Tony especially. I mean, you know, Mike was clearly set out for stardom, you know, but that Tony was a TV star, you know, because he'd known Tony as, you know, uh, an ink-stained wretch. And, and I think, you know, um, I think there would be part of him that'd be, that would be like, oh, my God, what's going on, of course, like, like we all say. But part of him would also say, isn't this great? These guys have become stars, and um, they're making a good living, and they're taking care of their families, and they're being appreciated for um, their talents um, in a way that Jeremy, how many, how, how, many bo- how, how many books did your father write? It depends how you count it, but, but the, the figure I generally use is 33. Your your father would be mortified that Tony Kornheiser <laughs> describes himself as a yodeler instead of a writer now because he grabbed all the cotton candy money, fame, and glory and stopped writing, as we well, all do, as we that, all do, by the way, because the ESPN cotton candy is intoxicating. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm certainly addicted myself. There's no question about that. Um, we're speaking with Dan Levitard. Um, whom I admire so much and have for a long time. And, you know, we're wrapping up the show now. We've got just a few minutes. And this weird thing with these, um, there's this weird thing, these billboards, I've never had to read them before. And they tell me you don't like to do it either. And Stagatz has got to do it. But I got to read this one for a chance to win 10 grand plus, 10 grand plus a virtual meet and greet with the Dan, that's why I don't like doing this, with the Dan Levitard Show gang. Text Levitard to 77333. Advance your auto at Advance Auto Parts. Limit one entry per day. See advanceautoparts.com for details. Um, 
Dan, one thing I think about um, being in this business a long time, you can get jaded and you can get spoiled. How do you maintain your enthusiasms? Wow, that's a, that's a, a harder question to answer than what we've got left on the show. Uh, but I would say <laughs> that the human the human condition is perpetually a curiosity for me and. As you know well, having dedicated your life to this, sports is the funhouse mirror where society goes to check its reflection. So America is in a turbulent time. America is upside down. You will, of course, see that fit run through the filter of sports. Uh, I'm, I'm perpetually curious about the human condition is what I would say. Like the individual scores and individual uh, results in the standings are not nearly as interesting to me as the stories being told through the humans who have perfected it. Do you still find joy in sports? I find joy in the human condition, I would say, and the high-end moments of sports. I, I believe that what we have to do at ESPN Daily, with the daily diarrhea we're producing across many networks, uh, basically instigating stories into being so, whether they're so or not, because we have to get the programming out there, there is a numbness to that. But the ones that catch your attention, that stimulate the mind, that tell the human story, that bring you to tears, that cause you pain, that make you want to be inspired to write or or live better. The high-end stories on those can still always reach me because I love this thing. I remember my dad talking about this in an essay he wrote for Forbes magazine. I think it was their 75th anniversary edition. And, and it was about how the athletes have gotten better, you know, by any way you can quantify it. But the, but the joy had been diminished for him. And I wonder if that's just, um, if that's just what happens when you get older, that you can never maintain that level of joy for whatever it is, but, but especially sports, the heroes of your youth can never be surpassed by the heroes when you get older. And, and you know, we've got, I think, 40 seconds before the show wraps up for all time for you to ponder this and expound on it. Uh, wow. I should get hard networked out here because there's not enough time for this. But yes, of course, as age comes wisdom and perspective and <laughs> learning. And as long as you keep trying, and there are life lessons in this beyond sports, but as long as you keep trying and keep feeling and fueling the, uh, the inspiration, uh, it's work, but it can be done. Thank you for doing this with me, Jeremy. It was an honor. Dan Lebetard, the great Dan Lebetard. Love you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for listening over the years to The Sporting Life, wherever you are.